From the 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories Storytelling Show This is Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez Stories and conversations with immigrants, refugees, second, third generations, and allies where we explore the ideas, policies, and histories that forge national identity, community, and belonging in America. We are your hosts, Angel Ling and Nestor Gomez. As a nation of immigrants, the United States has throughout its history politicized the issue, enacting legislation that keeps people out rather than welcoming them in. Immigration, it seems, both defines and wounds us. But what if we leverage this moment, defined by painful conversations on immigration, to remember ourselves home, mapping a different path to belonging? In this episode, Danny Forster shares his story of great loss to come out the other side with new meanings, new connections. First, here's Danny's story, as told on stage for 80 minutes around the world, Immigration Stories, on April 13, 2019, at the Caveat in Manhattan. My father, George Forster, was born in the town called Krynitsia, Poland, in 1940. And uh, that was the same year that Hitler invaded Poland. So needless to say, it was, it was not a safe place for Jewish people to live. My father's mother, my grandmother, died either during childbirth or she was taken by Nazis. I was told both stories by different people. Now, what I know to be true is that my father, a young boy, a motherless son, my grandfather, someone named Sigmund, a recent widower, had to escape Poland. My grandfather was a neurologist. He was a doctor. And so he used his medical license to get him jobs to move east out of Poland. He said, apparently, he always wanted to keep one natural and two national borders between him and Hitler at all times. They made it over the course of five years to a place called Tashkent, which is all the way to the east in the, in the, in the USSR, which is now uh, modern-day Uzbekistan. And my father, now about five years old, is there with no family, uh, no friends. And my grandfather needed to find a way to get out. And he started a letter-writing relationship with someone he knew when he was very young in America. So my grandfather left my father in Tashkent with friends or associates, someone, I don't know, and he flew to America, met this woman called Regine. They hit it off, uh, got married, and my grandfather became a citizen. He then was able to bring my father over. So now my father, at seven years old, having been alone in Tashkent for two years, gets on a plane and flies to America by himself. Actually, at the time, he was the youngest person to cross the Atlantic unattended uh, at that point. Actually, it was in the newspaper. Uh, my father gets to, gets to Brooklyn. They live in Midwood. Uh, they get a house, and, uh, and they assimilate. They, they live the American dream. My father uh, goes to high school in Brooklyn, goes to college in Brooklyn, uh, follows in his father's footsteps, becomes a neurologist, meets a young nurse uh, at Maimonides Hospital, a woman named Alice, marries her, becomes my mother. And then a few years later, they, they, they have a son, me. Uh, they move out of Brooklyn. They get a house in New Jersey. They get a house with a front lawn. They, they live the true American dream and, and produce a life for me where I can go to a private high school and go to college and live the life that I have. Um, 30 years later, uh, my mother suddenly died. And five years after that, tragically, I lost my father as well. Now, I should mention my mother was an only child, and my father was an only child. 
And obviously, my grandparents uh, had all been gone. Everyone from my father's side died in the Holocaust. So um, I had neither grandparents nor parents. I had neither aunts nor uncles. I didn't have siblings. I wasn't married, nor did I have kids. So at the age of 35, I I became an adult orphan. Um, I had never had any relationship to immigration. Um, I never felt like I was a first-generation American or had any meaning associated with that. I just had a great family and then lived in New Jersey. Um, but the implications of, of genocide became clear that when everyone was gone, I was, I was alone in a very profound and specific way. There was, there was the grief over my loss, but also the sense of isolation. And uh, it was awful. It was, uh, it was a real sense of oblivion. I actually stopped using my last name for a period of time. I wasn't trying to be like Cher. It was just that like <laughs> I, I, I didn't know what my last name Forster meant. I didn't know what the meaning. I, th- I knew there was meaning behind it, but that meaning was now gone. Uh, it was gone with my father and gone with my family. Two years later, uh, I, I receive a package from Poland with like 15 stamps and some very scraggly writing, and I open it up, and there's just tons of pictures, some in color, some black and white, some from the 19th century, uh, a number of letters, some written uh, in Polish and English, some typed, some not. This is where the story gets, gets weird. Um, so there's a guy in Poland who, who died, and this letter is from his son. Apparently, this man in his 60s is going through his father's uh, possessions. He's passed away trying to get the affairs in order. And he finds out that he, this man, who all his life has been a Roman Catholic living in Poland doing his thing, he finds out he's a Jew. So it turns out that this man, who had just passed away, couldn't get out during the Holocaust. And so he did what many people did, was that he hid his religion, he changed his name, he became a Roman Catholic, and kept that secret to himself, never telling his wife nor his kids. So his entire family grew up as a Catholic family, never knowing their origins. And he sent me uh, uh, this massive package. And in this package was a letter describing this story. Get this. In 1960, my grandpa, Sigmund, is a neurologist in Brooklyn doing his thing. A woman from Poland is on vacation in America. She has some neurological episode. They say, let's get her to a doctor who can speak Polish. She comes to my grandfather. My grandfather sees her, talks to her, treats her, and says, well, well, let's call your doctor back in Poland and figure out a bit about your, your medical history. So he calls her doctor. While talking to her physician, he realizes that he knows this man, and in fact, that's his cousin. And he had thought every single person he knew, every part of his family had died in the Holocaust. And in fact, he didn't. This man changed his name, became a Roman Catholic, and he was still alive. And there began an amazing friendship. And I have in my hand, in this package, these letters, my grandfather writing letters to this guy, his cousin, saying, oh, my son George is doing great. He wants to be a doctor. He's going to go to medical school. And I'm reading about my father, who I just recently lost. And there's pictures of him and pictures of many other people. And... On the back of all these pictures, written in pencil, is the word name, question mark. You see, this guy who just found out that he's Jewish, just found out that he's got this amazing new family, wants me to answer questions. He says, I'm so curious. I'm so excited to learn about our family. Could you please write the names of these people and send them back to me so I can begin to put a family tree together? The thing is, I didn't know anyone's name. I never asked any questions. I... Uh, I never knew to ask about these stories. My father uh, spoke five languages, two of which were Russian and Polish, and in my entire life I never heard him utter a single word in Polish ever. He had no accent whatsoever. So in addition to the grief of loss, there was also a sense of shame and embarrassment, like um, like I was an incurious son, like I didn't ask the questions, I was too self-absorbed, I didn't have a, a relationship enough with my father to know where my family was from even. And I, I took these pictures and I took these letters and I put them 
uh, in my cupboard and I didn't look at them. I, I couldn't deal with it. A year goes by, another letter comes with more photos and another request saying, hey, I don't know if you got that first package, but I'm really eager to learn about our family. Could you please just get back to me and, and look at some of these photos and tell me where we're from? Who are we? Again, I, I, uh, I wasn't able to deal with the package. The difference was this time I took the letter and I, uh, I took it to my office, so I kept it on my desk, so maybe I'd do something with this guy's letter. Separate from all of this, I'm an architect, and a building I'm designing here in Manhattan, just in Chelsea, is going to be a modular building, meaning the bottom of the building we're going to build in New York, but the top of it, it's a hotel, all those hotel rooms we're going to build off-site. We're going to manufacture them. And in fact, we decided to manufacture them in Krakow, Poland. Last November, I've got to go to Krakow to visit and to look at the construction to see how things are going. And I just, you know, out of curiosity, I just Googled the address of the factory and the address of this guy's letter, because it's right in this letterhead sitting on my desk, and they're 30 miles apart. So, um, so the day before I'm leaving for Poland, I write the email finally and say, Michael, it's me, Danny. Sorry I didn't get back to you two years ago. Um, I'm going to be in Poland tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> I, I, would you like to meet? Um, I kept, my, I kept my boundaries together and didn't like, lay it all on him. And uh, so I went to Poland. And I got there on Friday, and Saturday was at the factory looking at the stuff, no email. And, and Sunday I was at the factory approving all our stuff, and there was still no email. And, get, and Monday I was getting ready to go. And I got one of those emails where every single uh, character is bold. And he's like, I didn't have Wi-Fi. Um, <laughs> So Michael was up at his, his cottage, and, uh, and he's back. He's like, don't leave. I'm coming. I want you to meet my daughter and my sister. We're driving to Krakow. We'll take you to dinner. Stay. So, uh, so Michael, my cousin, I think, comes with his daughter and his sister, and we, um, and we have dinner. And it's lovely, and it's awkward, and it's sweet. His English is decent. My Polish is garbage, but we, we, we stumble through it. Um, and I've been back twice since then, and each time I've gotten to go to his house in the, in the, in the woods, and I've met his daughter's boyfriend, and we, we have a relationship where we send each other funny pictures on WhatsApp. <laughs> now, um, you know, th- this, like, genealogical kind of random connection does not take away the sense of grief or loss that I feel, having lost my parents and, and lost my family. It, it, it feels good. There's a connection for sure. But I will say, having gone through the experience, what has changed so significantly for me is the sense of shame that I felt because, uh, because I didn't ask questions. It wasn't that I didn't care or it wasn't that my father didn't want to share his story with me. It's that his story was about creating a different life for me. Uh, so in place of shame, what I now have uh, is a sense of gratitude for my father, and I understand him and his story in a different way. Thank you. Here's Danny and I in Manhattan, New York, where he shares with us his inner journey to uncovering his immigration story, providing him with new ways of living in gratitude. I was invited to go see a friend at 80 Minutes, and I, uh, and I, and I saw the show. And I think two things struck me. One was that the definition of immigrant is, is a broad term. 
you know, I'm a, I'm a white Jewish kid from Brooklyn. I don't think of myself, especially in today's climate, as someone who is an immigrant, let alone someone who is suffering the indignities of what's going on in our world today, right? So I don't identify. It's not, it's not part of my, my personal identification. Um, but I am a first-generation American. My father is not from this country. Uh, my father did not speak English as his native language. Um, and as I was watching that, that evening, it occurred to me that there's a story that I really want to tell because I guess this happens maybe to some people when you go through loss, you, you actually, there is a, at least for me anyway, I shall talk for myself, there's a sense of shame around that. And you, you, for me, I just don't feel necessarily comfortable talking about my loss and more to the point, I certainly don't feel comfortable talking about it publicly in any way. But then seeing that show and seeing different people talk about a much broader definition of what immigration meant to them and seeing them talk about loved ones and lost loved ones, I basically just marched up to Nestor after the show and said, hey, uh, I'm not a storyteller, um, but uh, tonight really moved me. And I think I have a story to tell. And he said, OK, write it down for me. And as I walked away, I thought, like, no, nah, I'm not really a writer either. I don't I don't really write stories. Uh, but I went home the next day and I sat on my iPhone and I wrote the longest email I've ever written. Hmm. I drafted the story and I sent it to Nestor and that was it. And then I guess a couple of days later he said, um, I'd like you to come and tell the story. Oh. And I mean, I'm very grateful for the show too because, you know, as I said in my story, my, my immigration story in my own mind started when I was 35 years old when after losing both my parents the the implication of their immigration story was felt by me in a real way because the truth was their american dream their immigration story like what my father did by coming here and meeting my mom and building a life was to give his kid in what he understood to be the american dream and he did that and in a beautiful way but maybe a very painful way i was insulated from his story i was insulated from the impacts i mean he he did well he became a doctor right we i went to private school like he did the stuff that one dreams of when you're in your shtetl in Poland trying to get out during the war. Like, that all happened. Um, but then my understanding of what the Holocaust was is academic in a sense. Like, I realized I didn't have like a gigantic family full of people. I always knew that. But I just thought I had a small family. It was more like a, it was like an anecdote. It wasn't like a, a, a crisis or something. Um, I mean, at no point did my dad say to me as a kid, hey, listen, um, FYI, you don't have a lot of family. So, so be mindful of that. Like, no one says that. No one thinks about that. So, so in a sense, for me, my awareness, my awakening to my own immigration story happened you know, kind of late in life. Mm -hmm. While you were growing up, did your family sort of tell you stories about, um, you know, you, you mentioned Tashkent, um, Uzbekistan, you know, did you have any sense of where you were from? Or no. not where you were from, but where your father was from? His journey, yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. The, the details that I put in my story, that took me racking my brain for a week. Um, and that's maybe the lump sum total of what I know from what I remember. Um, he did not talk about it. He went to medical school in Italy, and that was a joyous thing, and he was super pumped about it. And that... He spoke Italian and he would love Italian food. And, and for a while, I kind of thought we were Italian uh, because mm. his relationship to that part of his life was totally different than anything that had to do with Eastern Europe or the Holocaust. So, no, to be perfectly honest, um, I, I know very, very little. And um, and I think in telling the story, though, I, I have to I want to be I want to be very clear about this. 
my lack of understanding, I, I really do understand that in terms of a decision my dad made not to, um, not to frame my existence or even to frame his family dynamics around that narrative. It was about something different for him um, and something optimistic and something of his own choosing. So tell me about your family in Poland. Do you call them family? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. We kind of toy with it. Like, yeah, we do. And, um, and we're very kind of uh, enthusiastic and affectionate around each other. I think, um, you know, his, uh, this gentleman, uh, Michael, like, you know, as I said, we, we kind of WhatsApp a lot. And he, we sends, he sends me kind of hilarious things. And um, he tells me about the family vacation and the holiday and his, his daughter uh, follows me on Instagram and she's an artist and she shows me some of the work that she's up to. And so, yeah, I think it's, you know, like I said in my story, it's, it's a great connection. It is by no means a kind of like, and that day my life was different. It's not that. It, it isn't. It's, it's like finding a long lost cousin and you have some relationship. And I think it's, I think it's one of those, I'll put it this way. The way I think about it is that if I had continued to stay in that um, self-contained bubble of grief and closure, the same grief that allowed me to get that letter and put it in a box for two years and not look at it, right? That it, That's someone literally, someone who's lost family and has family reaching out from across the ocean saying, hey, can we connect? And my response is, I'm going to put that request for connection into a cupboard. So the the the, the experience for me, what's powerful is that it is an act of reminder that I have to accept connection. That when people are trying, even if it's not the connection I want or it doesn't look the way I thought it should look, it doesn't make, like, the universe doesn't care about my point of view, right? The universe is asking me to connect, so you connect. And so that's what's been really great about it is it's a reminder that if you stay open, connections are available to you. You don't get to decide what the connections look like, but you mm-hmm. get to decide if you accept them or you reject them. Um, yeah, I wanted to segue into that change for you Mm. into gratitude um but you kind of touched on it um how long did it take you to get to that place and how many relationships did you have to like cut off or whatever you know (laughs) (laughs) good question um you know i think gratitude is is an action more than a state of being like i have to I have to live in gratitude. I have to I have to think about gratitude in order to feel grateful. And so going up to Nestor and asking him to let me tell that story and doing something I don't normally do, which is write my story and email it to a stranger, like that's how I live in gratitude because I actually stay in that story and I talk about that story and I live in that narrative. If I am feeling unwell, if I'm not taking care of myself, if I'm feeling isolated and lonely then I have the other story to cling to the one where everyone's gone and I'm alone and, and I got screwed and my life is cursed. And so I think, I think, unfortunately, I don't think it's an epiphany that happens like a light switch and stays switched. I think that light switch can toggle right back to the darkness pretty easily. If I don't stay in active gratitude, like reminding myself that the life I have today is predicated in the life that my father and my mother enabled me to have through what they did. Like I'm, you know, I got to 
host a TV show and make films and I have an architecture practice and I get to tell stories like, and I live in Manhattan. Like these are all really, really nice things. And these things didn't happen because I'm charming and smart. These things happened because my parents busted their ass and my dad went through some crazy things that I've never, I could never imagine what he went through. Um, that's how I live in gratitude. The alternative is like, my parents are dead. I'm totally screwed. My life is fucked. And then I can feel that feeling too. And they're both available to me at every minute of every day. I think that's the, that's the dangerous thing, but that's also the exciting thing. It means that like a better state of mind is an option so long as I choose to engage in that thinking. Just to bring it back maybe to immigration, I think, you know, when Nestor uh, opens the night and he talks about immigrants, children of immigrants and allies, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, the immigration conversation today is, is just a very painful one to have in our country at the moment. And I think, you know, it's funny, before I came here, this is a true story. I was in the shower listening to um, a Hamilton mixtape. Me too. Today? Yes. No shit. I just saw Hamilton in Chicago Did last you? weekend. And so I'm now a Hamilton fan. And I'm like, this is my story too. You know? So yeah. totally. And I was just listening, I kid you not, to the mixtape. And then one of the songs is the, the immigrant song, which is like, yes. a, you know, immigrants, we get the, we get the job done. We done yep. And it's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful rap song. It's totally amazing. Um, but it's like a reminder that like at one point, we like brandished this thing like a badge of honor, like leaving England, being immigrants, building this thing. And now like so such a pejorative association with the term. So I just want to say in closing, I love that uh, Nestor kind of reminds us that like immigrants, sons of immigrants, friends of immigrants, allies of immigration. It's a much broader, much bigger coalition of people. And that's a good thing. And I'm glad that my immigrant, I'm glad that this whole event let me reconnect with my immigration story because, yeah, I can just be seen as the white kid from New York telling the story but I need to align myself with this stuff because I am aligned to it. Uh, and at first glance, see me walking, first glance, seeing me walk down the street, you wouldn't necessarily think that. And I'm glad that like, this gave me the opportunity to remind myself that I'm an immigrant and an ally of immigrants, and I'm a part of this community. That was New York City-based architect and storyteller Danny Forster. Early in his career, Danny became the host of Discovery Channel's Build It Bigger in which he shared the stories behind transformative construction projects around the world. Since then, in addition to helming the award-winning architecture firm DFNA, he has continued to tell stories about buildings and their cultural and political context. As a TV host and producer, he has created the Emmy-winning documentary series Rising, Rebuilding Ground Zero and two seasons of How China Works, among others. As a speaker, he has given the TED Talk, Looking versus Reading, and a succession of talks and keynote addresses related to architecture, sustainability, and modular design. Recently, Danny has started to tell more personal stories with appearances at The Moth, Tail, and the Armando Diaz experience at the Magnet Theater. Here's Nestor and I on Danny's story. You know, we keep going back to the family reunification part of the immigration experience um, because uh, his grandfather left, his grandfather came to the United States leaving his father Right, that sometimes people leave their kids behind um, I thought that that was a really touching, kind of like 
part of the story that I could see that, you know, his father didn't tell him in detail of what it was like being an immigrant, right, in America. And yeah, a lot of, um, I think a lot of families, like you said, you know, split up so many of, um, yeah, that's like such an immigrant, I don't want to say immigrant experience, but the first um, immigrants that move to the U.S., sometimes it is being separated from their families. Yeah, and also how some pieces of the story or your own family story become missing. You don't know, like he doesn't know what happened to his father when his father was by himself. And then because of that, he didn't know also, he he didn't know about his grandfather having a, a cousin in Poland. So these are things that he didn't know about it. And the cousin in Poland had kids uh, and they were raised Catholic. And then they, they find out years later. So it's all these mis- missing pieces of a puzzle, of an immigration puzzle. Danny brings up a couple of times in his story, like the American dream, right? Like his family made it possible, right? His parents got married, started a family, moved to New Jersey. All this was part of the American dream. How much of that, Nestor, and you have two kids, how much of embracing the American dream, moving to the U.S., like immigrating to the U.S., embracing... um your new home, and then making the American dream possible. How much do we then lose as part, like our, our histories and our, right, he's, he also said he, his Polish was garbage, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. like our original story, our family, like the, the histories to home and then, um, our original language, you know. Yeah, there there are some things that get lost along the way, sadly. Some traditions that get either changed or get lost or get misplaced or get mixed. Um, language also is another another missing puzzle. Um, like there there are many immigrants who have kids here who that the immigrants speak another language, whichever could it be Spanish or Chinese or any other language, and the kids don't speak the language. Mm-hmm. So there's another missing puzzle because the parents cannot speak properly with the kids, so they cannot have those conversations because there's a language barrier, either because the parents don't speak uh, fluent English or because the kids don't speak the the original language that the parents speak. Yeah. I grew up in South Jersey, and so there weren't that many Chinese people in South Jersey. Um, And so I grew up actually like just speaking English. I have a hard time. We we were talking about this last um, one of the previous um, interviews, but I have a hard time with communicating with my mother. Um, And my family is like very, like really embraced this American dream, you know, and uh, we also don't celebrate as many of the Chinese holidays and festivals and you know my family and I we never really went back as a family to Hong Kong you know and let me ask you how much Spanish does your kids speak oh my (laughs) 
Yeah, one of my kids speaks uh, is, is speaks uh, broken Spanish and trying to get some. One of my kids trying to get some uh, uh, Spanish classes to get the better Spanish. Yeah, their their Spanish is not as fluent as I wish it would be. Uh, but at the same time, my English, uh, you know, I have a strong accent, and my mother. English is has she has an even stronger accent than I do, and her English is probably not as good. So yeah, there, there's there's a big difference on on the way we we communicate or or the preferred language that we communicate with. Yeah, I I think like like you're talking about trying to get back the language. Uh, so you're trying to put those pieces back together, and Danny's story is about putting pieces of the puzzle together as well. Immigration stories with Nestor Gomez. Is a production of 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories. More information on 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories can be found on our website, nestorgomezstoryteller.com, and the show's Facebook page. Please contact us if you have a story you want to share, or would like to invite the show to your city or organization near you. Immigration Stories podcast is created, produced. Edited by Nestor Gomez and Angel Link. Thank you for listening. Please remember to like and share. Hello, listeners. Nestor and I are taking a quick break, and we will be back with a couple more episodes for season one. In October, you'll hear from New York City storyteller Annie Tan and Chicago storyteller Alana Murphy. We also have a few live shows coming up in October in both Chicago and New York City. If you've loved Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez podcast, please come out and support our live show, 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories.